Thank you for listening to Ivy Podcast, where we feature weekly leadership conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Now, here is your host, John Karsibayev. Uh, my name is Melissa Arnaldi. I am the CEO of Rio, which is a subsidiary of AT&T, and we provide digital entertainment services to Tinland customers in Latin America. That's awesome, Melissa. Thank you so much for finding time to join us on the Avi podcast today. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about your current role, uh, what's you know what falls under your purview. But before we do that, give us a little bit of a uh, thumbnail version of your career timeline. Sure, sure. Uh, and first of all, thanks for having me. So I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, one of three kids, and uh, I uh, I worked really hard, uh, put myself really through undergraduate and graduate school. My undergraduate degree was in accounting. Uh, I have a master's as well. And um, soon after I got finished with my graduate degree, I uh, decided that I, even though I had an undergraduate in accounting, it's not something I wanted to pursue. I wanted, I think, a career. It was a little bit more dynamic uh, and challenging. So soon after graduate school, I started with a company called Accenture and it's a consulting company. And that's really where I got my first foray into technology. Um, what they do when you start with that company, they put you through a boot camp of about three, four months. And so you learn from the ground up technology development. And for me, that was exciting because it was something very different than a lot of my friends and the path that they were pursuing. Um, I also knew that technology was something that was going to drive innovation. You could just see it uh, by the way it was being used, introduced. And so anyway, I was with Accenture for 12 years and uh, became partner there and uh, had some great experiences. That's exciting, and thank you for thank you for that uh, insight into your career timeline. Uh, it seems very diverse and with different backgrounds. So, fast forward to current role. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what falls under your purview. Sure. So uh, after I was with Accenture, I got uh, a great offer to join AT and T family, and one of my first roles there was to launch the iPhone. So that was over you know thirteen years ago. Uh, very exciting, dynamic product. And while I've been at AT&T for the past 13 years, I've been able to work myself into increasing levels of responsibility. And so my current role now is I lead the Brio team. Uh, and this uh, team is comprised of about 10,000 employees. We support 10 million customers. And we offer video services uh, across these 10 countries. And the video services mainly are satellite uh, type services. And they offer very compelling content. Uh, we're great about exclusive sports. Uh, we have many um, local content movies that are made and produced that we also show in these countries. And you know, we view it as really a company that brings entertainment to everyone, no matter where they live, where they work, because we not only have what we call prepaid and a postpaid service where you can get entertainment in your own home on the big screen TV. We also now have what we call an over-the-top or an OTT product called DirecTV Go. And so now as a customer um, of Brio, you can now take that content and enjoy it wherever you are on the small screen. So we've been able to um, really grow 
um, our capabilities in this region, support our customers and offer them products based on the geographic zones, based on kind of financial uh, situations and really be able to, uh, to be there for them uh, when they need us. And particularly in light of the COVID, I would say this past year, you know, it was a service that for them, not only was for entertainment, but was also for education, it was also for, you know, how they would stay engaged with the world and understand what was going on around them. So it, it's become a, a product that they've really known uh, and enjoyed quite a bit. Well, that's very exciting. And uh, it, it, the the project that you led as far as bringing the iPhone to AT&T, I'm, I'm personally, I'm a customer. I'm a customer of AT&T and, you know, heavy user of all of the Apple products. So I'm, uh, I'm on that program. So I guess I should, I should thank you for successful launch well, of no, that. Th thank you for being a customer. <laughs> uh, so now if there's any issues, I know who to call directly. <laughs> that's, that's so, um, but all jokes aside, from that experience, bringing the, you know, such, such product as an iPhone to an organization like AT&T, I'm pretty sure it was a monumental endeavor that you guys had to go through. What were some of the lessons learned or some of the key takeaways from that experience that really helped you succeed in your current role with the current projects that you're leading? Well, that's a great question. I have to tell you, it has been a the foundation for me and it's been extremely important because when I first joined AT&T, this was my first responsibility and product. And you know, I didn't know anybody at AT&T. It's a large company. Uh, it's growing. It has many lines of business. Very exciting because uh, you have lots of opportunity within the company. But when you're trying to launch a revolutionary product, which by the way, AT&T at the time had the exclusive contract um, with Apple. So we were the only ones launching it initially, and we had to launch it within months, not years, but within months. And so it was challenging. And so I think very quickly, I learned that I needed a team and I needed a team of people cross-sectional from engineers to business analysts, to testers, uh, to people who are great with communication and writing requirements. And because from the development side, that's where I really led it, working with my business counterparts. But very quickly, you learn you don't have all the answers. Um, this is something that's moving very fast, and it's going to launch whether we're ready or not. So there is no timeline delay. There is no, you know, maybe we can launch part of the product, not all of it. I mean, we were all in. And so we knew that we had to get the right people at the table. We had to make sure that we implemented agile systems so that we could move fast. Uh, we really had to be on not 24 by 7, but a lot of times all day uh, video calls because, you know, AT&T is in Dallas and of course, uh, Apple uh, is in Cupertino. And so that alone, the, the distance and you have to work very fast and efficient. We knew that we had to be um, really joined at the hip um, with Apple. So it was, it was a great experience, but I think some of the major learnings were that you have to collaborate. You have to be willing to get a number of people on your team that think uh, very differently than you, that have different experiences than you, because you're not going to have all the answers. Um, I also think you have to be very transparent with your client, with your customers, with people you're working with on, you know, what's working, what do we have to improve? You've got to drive accountability. Um, and then I think lastly is we had to take risk. And so you had to, to be a smart risk taker. You could not let fear uh, drive your decision, your intuition, your thoughts. You know, you really had to make sure that you were pushing yourselves and your team as quickly and efficiently as possible because uh, all expectations were that this product was going to be revolutionary. And of course it was. 
Right. Well, that's, you know, what, what an experience it must have been. And it sounds like you had to build out the entire organization just for that particular initiative from, you know, seems like a full-fledged project management office with the defined methodology on how you guys were running the project, managing the, you know, the deliverables and the requirements and so forth. So that's, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure we can talk probably the rest of the episode just <laughs> on that particular topic, but just but, moving on. But, but I was going to say, just right to your point, there was no blueprint. There was no roadmap. You know, this was completely new to the industry, completely new to uh, technology and how we had used phones in, in the past. So, so you're right, but it was, it was exciting. So it was almost a company on its own where it's a mini, I guess, a startup within the organization that, you know, you had to run. And in my previous life, where I ran project management offices or product management groups within the organization, it was always the concept of kind of that, that mini CEOs where you have the product or project managers running their sub projects and they are responsible from A to Z. And I think that just creates that culture, that environment of innovation, so to say, which leads me to another point that I wanted to talk to you about on some of the strategies or, you know, the practical recommendations that maybe have worked for you well in the past or something that you you learn from when it comes to building and fostering a culture of innovation within your organization or on your teams. Share with us any strategies that uh, really help you build that type of culture. Yeah, so, you know, the world is changing very quickly, obviously, and a lot of that is because technology is so pervasive. And so everybody now has access to technology, which is great, but it also means uh, there's no one person who's the smartest person in the room anymore, right? Technology really gives us the ability to learn and grow as individuals and as teams. And so I think as part of the speed of technology, innovation is also extremely important. And every company, I think, is either being disrupted or they will be disrupted. Um, there's just no way around it. And so for the teams that I work with in, in particular, one of the very first things I tell them is that if they're comfortable, if they're not pushing themselves and learning, then um, they're not striving to the best that they can be. I believe in a continual environment of learning. I think each and every day we should challenge ourselves about what's a new skill set, what's a new way to think, what books are people reading, I think that is extremely important innovation. I also think that you have to have an atmosphere and a culture that allows people to take risk, that allows people to understand that you have each other's back and you probably are going to fail. But to me is, you know, if you don't fail, then you're not progressing. We all have ways to learn. Uh, the other thing is you have to have a culture of innovation. And what does that mean? I mean, you have to have a culture that um, will allow people to ask questions a culture that uh, will disrupt um, themselves and change their process and procedures to build and move fast. Um, you also, I think, have to think about um, data analytics. You know, it's so easy, I think, for us as executive, as leaders, to make decisions based on our experience and based on our intuition. But that's all that is, it's just intuition. And now we have access to so much rich data and patterns of data what our customers um, say about our products and services, how they use our products and services. And you can look at that data and come up with some amazing insights about what's working and what's not. And that it's in itself will drive innovation, will drive uh, different thinking, will we'll push yourselves um, to think creatively. I also think that, um, you know, the way in which you work together as a team from a cultural perspective is interesting. 
and that the same system and processes that if you use five years ago, if you're still using them, again, you're not pushing yourselves, you're not being innovative and efficient. And for us, I mean, digital transformation has been huge. And it's one of these journeys that we started a couple of years ago, knowing that, you know, honestly, none of our customers want to pause. Like they would like to do everything online um, in the comfort of their own uh, homes that's frictionless. And so when you think about digital transformation, that in itself is something that drives innovation, how you use technology is, is important. And I think with the pandemic, of course, we saw the acceleration of it. So a lot of times when you think about innovation, it's not only what you're necessarily planning to do, but it's also um, you know, patterns out, outside of your control that, that happen that you can very quickly think about how can you capitalize on that? How can you drive that for the benefit of your customers, for the benefit of your employees? Um, so I, I think first and foremost, you have to be transparent, you have to be agile, you have to be able to take risks, and you have to have a continual learning uh, culture to be innovative. Those are very interesting insights. And I talk to a lot of executives, different companies, different sizes. And a lot when we talk about innovation, share very common character, you know, characteristic that you also talking about, where you almost have to walk that walk where, yes, we can plaster our walls with great mission statements and how innovative we are. But at the end of the day, if, if you as a leader is, you know, not, you know, walking the walk at the end of the day of what you're preaching in a sense, Yes, the failures are not necessarily failures. Those are actually learning opportunities to take a look at what has gone wrong or what has what have we learned from that and leveraging that for any future innovation you know, initiatives. And also you touched upon the digital transformation, which is interesting topic on its own where everything basically starts with people transformation like you've talked about, that we can innovate and re-engineer or you know, modernize all technology in the world but if the people are not bought into that vision, it's going to be very challenging to get that type of transformation off the ground. So definitely thank you for sharing some of these insights from that perspective. And as you talk about innovation, and I'm sure you research a lot, you, you follow different trends, you, 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 you analyze the markets. From your standpoint, what are some of the different trends and ideas that really excite you these days, whether that's in your industry or maybe outside of that as a personal interest? Uh, what are some of the things that you're researching, perhaps looking to invest in further, share with us from that perspective? Yeah, well, it, it does come down to the foundation of technology, which um, I'm excited to have, you know, background in and be inspired by the changes in technology. Because of that, industries are completely changing. The lines are being blurred. You know, one company you think is a services company, all of a sudden then becomes a product company that's innovating uh, new technologies and products that you would think that wouldn't even be in their wheelhouse. And so technology has allowed us to really look beyond kind of the borders and the blinders of what we thought was possible. Um, but some of the trends that I'm excited about, as I mentioned earlier, is around data analytics. I think there's so much that you can learn from that data and from the insights that can propel uh, your company forward. So I think that's important. I also think uh, around the cultural transformation. I mean, I know this is more of the softer side, but I think we've learned through the pandemic that leaders who are empathetic, who are humble, who um, listen to their employees, who listen to their customers um, are going to be some of those that, that went out because now not only do our customers have choice, but our employees have choice. And you know, sometimes the, the focus and the importance of, where they are from a priority perspective changes within their, their life. And 
you know, I, I guess my point is that you have to understand the culture. You have to be adaptive to the culture based on the circumstances, based on technology, um, based on, you know, really the, the, the pressures that are happening, not inside the company, but outside externally as well. Um, the other thing I think from an innovation perspective and technology that excites me is that you look at companies like fintech companies that um, are more focused on data analytics, the financials, capital markets. And then all of a sudden, because of technology, they become a technology company. So I think it's stepping back and looking at companies, looking at industries and thinking about what if, what can be. Because I just don't think there are limitations that we've had in the past. Um, that we will have in the future. And so, again, one of the things I talk to my team about all the time is how can we disrupt ourselves? We can do it ourselves or somebody else can do it. And so thinking about how customers use your product, how they could use it differently, how you take that product and then cross into another vertical and another maybe adjacent services or a value-added service, and then what type of product do you get them? And so I think you just constantly have to be asking those questions about what are your competitors doing? How can you push yourself um, to drive innovation? I love that concept of disrupting yourself at the end of the day, I think is very powerful yet oftentimes overlooked in a sense, people get comfortable, companies get comfortable or, you know, complacent in a sense that we are doing certain things and they're working. So, you know, there's really no need to worry about that. But if you build that culture within the DNA of the organization that you constantly ask yourself that, there's another analogy that I like to use, especially on my teams or everyone, or any of my clients also uh, from a perspective. And I use that myself on a daily basis is the acronym uh, WWYRD it basically stands for what would your replacement do? That if you were in a position and you thinking from a standpoint, if someone else was to come in and do your job today, what would they do? What, what, what are the different strategies they would implement that maybe I'm not thinking about? So that's just another kind of uh, supplement towards what you were talking about. So mm -hmm. thanks for sharing that. Um, when, you know, obviously none of us have the crystal ball and we all talk about the different dynamics of shaping our organizations, whether that's a hybrid model or continue from a virtual perspective and the overarching concept of future of work. Um, what's, what are some of the things that on top of your mind these days as we entering the phase, you know, so, somewhat of a post-pandemic? How are you preparing your organization for the next period? The reason I'm asking that is because as through my conversations with a lot of other executives, it, that topic is very, very interesting for, for others as well in terms of what are they doing at this company? What are they doing at that? So anything you can share from that perspective? Absolutely. Look, I mean, I think uh, we're in the, the height of the pandemic in the U.S. Um, last March. You know, I would have said it was incredibly hard to get all of our workers in a remote workforce environment where they were safe, but still able to support customers. You know, we were one of the first companies in Latin America that took all of our call center employees and moved them to home. And that was a huge feat in itself, right? Making sure they had access to, to laptops, to computers, to audiovisual, to making sure we still had secure workspaces, you know, within their home. So that was tough, but I think what's gonna be more challenging is then getting the workforce back to the workplace. Um, obviously, they're all working, but we're all working now in different ways in different environments. And so I think one of the things you have to think about is 
how do you do how do you get back to whatever the new normal will be for your company but do it in such a way that people can still bring their authentic self to work do it in such a way that you still provide frameworks of, of flexibility for your employees and I think you also have to gradually go back to the workforce, which is what we're starting to do with 3O and within AT&T. I think it's extremely hard if you think you're going to rip a bandaid off and everybody's going to get back to whatever their designation is on, you know, X date. I think it will take time. I think there's a bit of anxiety with going back to the workplace uh, because people are now comfortable and set up in where they've been in the past 12 to 14 months. So I think it's important that we do it gradually. I think it's important that uh, we have structures and processes that are supporting employees and the well-being of them. You know, a lot of people, uh, thankfully, have been able to focus on their well-being and their family and things that they haven't had as much time. And, you know, I would like nothing more to continue to be able to support that as a leader, as, as an executive. And I hope we, we can still do that for each other. Um, I think the other thing around the fact that we've now been on audio-visual calls for over a year I think is, you know, I know there's burnout that happens with that at the same time, particularly what I've seen maybe because I have a company that works across 10 countries, three languages, multiple time zones, the video conferencing has been an equalizer. You know, you don't care about roles, you don't care about titles, you know, everybody's engaged. It's something where people feel like they can participate and it's just because they're not in the room, they're not adding value. And so that's one of the things when I think about return to work that we have to be mindful about is how do you continue to drive collaboration and, and be an equalizer across your company and make sure that you're really getting the best out of people. But I do think to your point, there will be a hybrid. You know, there will be some people who uh, will be back in an office because they need to because of their job and their, or their, you know, particular uh, responsibilities. And then in others, you know, you, you need a break. I mean, people want to engage face-to-face. -face. They're not, not as necessarily a replacement for face-to-face, -face. Um, and so that I think makes sense. Other people who um, we've been able to see, and by the way, I think the pandemic has hopefully clarified this for everybody, particularly for, for our companies, people are very productive remotely. Um, you know, we weren't sure what would happen, and during a pandemic, I mean, people leaned in. Uh, they delivered their results. They exceeded, you know, some of their expectations, and so, you know, I'd like to think that we can give employees the flexibility, whether they work from home or work uh, in the office, I think you have to have a process and structure around it. And I think you have to be patient about how we get these processes back in place and how you get people back to a workplace, if that's uh, what they're going to do in the future. I love what you said from a perspective of being an equalizer, where the organizations who switched to completely virtual, it really flattened the organization from a standpoint of everyone's almost equal. It all, you know, when we all on Zooms, when we all on these video conference calls, it all, it all boils down to kind of your perspective, what you bring to the table and how you collaborate with others. So that's a very interesting concept. Uh, thank you for sharing that. When, when we were talking about your earlier days during your, your iPhone project for AT&T, one thing you've mentioned is it was a monumental team effort. And obviously as an executive, as a leader of that project or whatever you, you know, organization you're currently leading, surrounding yourself with, with A players, with, with top candidates is at the top of your mind, whether you're actively recruiting or not. Share with us any strategies that really help you attract the top talent to your teams. Sure, uh, and, and you're right. Uh, one of the things that 
I tell people is that I, I, I think I've gotten better and better. One of the things I focus on are building high-performing teams. Uh, work is too complex and moving too fast-paced to think you're going to have it all. And so some of the things that I look for is, uh, first and foremost, diverse thoughts. Uh, I want people who think differently. Um, I also think that to some degree, you need a disruptor at your table. You need somebody who is going to challenge the status quo, who is going to challenge some of the um, normal way of, of doing things. And so I think a disruptor is important. So you have diversity, you have a disruptor. Uh, you also have people that, uh, for the most part, I hope are humble and that they understand that they can make mistakes and that there's really nobody who's one smart person in the room. I mean, collectively, uh, the team needs to excel. And that means you need people that think differently, that understand that everyone should be asking questions because nobody has uh, the right answer. But first and foremost, um, for me, it's got to be a team that works well together. And that means you, you have to put your own personal ambition viewpoint to the side and come at it from other people's perspective. So instead of you thinking, okay, here's what we need to do. Here's the objective. Uh, how can I get the team to think my way? It needs to be, okay, here's the objective. How can we collectively think about this and step back almost from a reverse engineering thought process and get everybody collectively to weigh in? I think one of the keys to success is you have to have a workforce, in particular your leaders that are engaged and inspired. They are not going to be engaged and inspired if you are not asking them um, to join in in the conversation. You're not asking them to come up with ideas and then holding them accountable. So it can't be a, just a one-way uh, communication. So that, that's great. And thank you for sharing that from a standpoint of, you know, attracting and retaining the top talent to your teams. And to take that a little bit further, when we talk about selection and interviewing for, for you being the top of your organization, top of your division, uh, candidates that interview with you go through multiple rounds of assessments and interviews with different teams. And when they sit down with you, uh, I'm curious, can you give us an insight into an interview with Melissa? What does that look like? Uh, what types of questions are you asking to the extent that you can share that with us? And more importantly, what, what do you look for in some of the responses when you talk to the candidates? Yeah, so I think when you interview someone, it, it does need to be conversational. Uh, versus me asking a number of questions, them asking a number of questions. I, I think it has to be conversational. I'm looking for somebody who is very interested, obviously, in the opportunity. I'm looking for someone who's done the, their homework, who understands the organization, you know, to the degree they can, the business, the products we offer. Um, they need to come to the table with some insight about potentially ideas of how to grow the business. And it doesn't matter what level, what role you're in everybody can add value into driving growth. Um, I also think the person needs to have done their homework around uh, the culture. I think the culture is important and for that person to understand, is it a culture that they wanna work in or do they have ideas about how, how to change uh, the culture? I also am looking for someone who has a strong appetite for learning, who can say, Look, I'm not maybe familiar with every all areas of the business. Here's what I do know. Here's what I need to learn. Um, I also think they need to come with a set of questions. And maybe a couple of questions would be, so uh, how have people excelled in this role in the past? What would you like to see that's different as far as outcomes out of this role? How do you measure success? And so I think they need to come with some thoughtful questions as well, because you want to make sure that it's a fit. 
you know, if they decide to take the role, if they're offered the opportunity, that it's a fit between uh, the person taking the role and the, the company that they're working for. I, I've said this before, and I think others have said it also, is that people don't leave uh, a company per se, they leave their boss, their supervisor. And so it's important that, um, you know, both sides feel comfortable um, going forward with, with, with the relationship. But I, I think people who are curious, who ask questions, who have done their homework, uh, who have some ideas, and then also kind of set expectations about what they're looking for out of the job. They should be interviewing me just as much as I'm interviewing them. Oh, the, those are great insights. And from a standpoint, I love that you mentioned that it's a, it's a conversation at the end of the day. It's an opportunity for both sides to, to make that assessment. And a lot of times when other executives that either we reach out to or we, you, you know, they reach out to us to participate on the podcast, some questions that we, you know, we, we feel that around what's in it for me as an executive. But in, in my point of view, for you as an executive to participate in the short conversation like this, it also provides an opportunity for any prospect candidates or people that are looking into your organization to get at least high level understanding of who, who, who is the leader of that particular division or organization. And I've gotten so many, you know, comments from a lot of the executives that I've hosted in the past that in some of the interviews, to the point that you were talking about doing the homework, uh, looking at the past speaking engagements or looking at the past you know, conferences where the leader participated. What have they talked about? What is their communication style? I think a lot of those things really matter for, for any candidate that actually joins a particular company and sees who is at the top. Because like you said, you know, people don't leave the company, they leave the boss that they had. So that's a great analogy. And I appreciate the insight into kind of how you structure your conversations with your prospective candidate. That's very interesting. Sure. Um, what, what, uh, what's, your, what's your take on retention? Because these days uh, with companies shifting to remote, everyone thought that, oh, great, now I'm going to get this, this great opportunity to tap into talent you know, throughout the world uh, where I didn't, maybe didn't necessarily have that access before when we were constrained within our physical location of the office. But also on the other spectrum, the competition increased 10x from other companies, probably much bigger, much faster, or their ability to offer maybe something more than your organization to tap into the same talent. So retention becomes a big challenge, big focus for a lot of companies. What's, what are your thoughts on that? I think there's a couple of things you have to think about. I think, first of all, you have to make sure that your company and organization has a purpose. Um, and I, you know, people will talk about this, but I, I think it's important. You have to be explaining the why, like why, um, why the company, your, the company they're working for is well suited for them. What's the, the vision and the purpose? And hopefully it aligns with who they are, their values and, and what they're striving to do. I also think you have to try to know people individually. And I know that's hard across big companies, but it's important that you have a relationship um, with people on your team. You possibly know their kids' names. You know what they're interested in. You know, you have to invest in people. I mean, they, I mean, you just have to take the time to pick up the phone, make the phone calls. When people are promoted or when, or when they you know, get a new job, pick up the phone and say, congratulations. You know, email maybe is easier, but I think it's taking some of those extra steps to make it sure you have personalized conversations with people. Because um, look, everybody's different, but for me, I will work as hard as I can and be as committed as I am 
if I have somebody who I think supports me and has my back. And so that's been my motto with my team all the time. I have your back. I am here for you. Um, and I truly believe that. I mean, I am, my responsibility is to help them grow. And I think every leader, particularly if you're in management and you have a team, your job is to help your team grow and be inspired and engaged. And if you're not up for doing that, then maybe you shouldn't be in a leadership role because it's so critical. Um, but I do, I, I think it gets down to people have to believe in something bigger than themselves. And they have to believe that the work that they're doing, that they come to work each and every day and sacrifice time with their family, with their friends for a job. They have to believe that it's purposeful, filled for them. And uh, it makes sense. And that uh, there's an outcome that they're going to be excited about, which is why I think communication is so important. I tell people, if you're a leader, you're supposed to get out behind that, that computer or that PC, pick up a microphone, get in front of people and talk to them. Um, because you can't assume that people know the objectives of the company, what is going on every day and how we're, you know, executing against those objectives. You have to communicate. And so for some people, that's not very comfortable and it's not something that you necessarily are born with, but you something you have to practice. And I think that's really important to engage your employees and get them behind the objectives of the company and to stay. Right, right. Absolutely. No, that's very powerful in the sense that authentic communication, that even if you don't necessarily have the skills, but communicating from authentic standpoint and also showing genuine care, like you were talking about, that it's not just because I'm in a leadership position and I'm, I almost have to do that, but showing, expressing that genuine care for your coworkers, your peers, your organization, I think that goes very far and oftentimes overlooked. So that's, that's very, that's very powerful. And Melissa, in conclusion, I, the last part of the episode, I like to focus a little bit more on your, your content diet, as I like to call that. What are some of the sources that you consume on a daily basis that help you stay ahead of the game from a self-actualization perspective or self-learning? Share with us any of those resources. Oh, sure. So, I mean, one of the first thing I do in the morning after I get my coffee or really my Diet Coke that I like to drink, my caffeine fix. Uh, I start uh, reading newspapers. I go through the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, the Washington Post. I, I look at uh, technology articles. And so I enjoy reading. And I think it's important. I think it's, it's great that we all have technology that generally we have access to that we can learn. And so doing a lot of reading articles, industry articles are important. I also enjoy reading books. And so uh, leadership books in particular. I, I think that the way in which people work is changing so quickly and um, where people live and how they interact. And so leadership is changing. You know, it's one thing to say that you're a leader and um, you understand the dysfunctions or the benefits of a team and, and you work hard to make sure you've got a high performing team. But I think also the way in which you communicate can change over time and what a good leader is and the characteristics of a good leader will change over time. And so I enjoy reading uh, leadership books and um, then really talking with people. I think everybody should step back and think about who are the top 10 to 15 people in their industry, some of the smartest people, um, and try to go talk to them or exchange emails with them or read their blogs, read their articles, read the books they publish, because you can learn a lot um, from, from those interactions. I love that, especially the last part, because that's at the end of the day, what I do, uh, I initially started out 
when during my time at Harvard, I was talking to one of my professors in terms of how do I expand my network? How do I build that, you know, that circle of trusted mentors and peers in the industry? And he mentioned that he actually had his own podcast that he interviewed, uh, you know, people that he looked up to. And I thought there's nobody higher than him. And so that kind of just started out as an experiment. But at the end of the day, it's also very powerful surrounding yourself, your network and investing into that. Having these conversations is very great source of uh, learning. And last but not least, what is your favorite book or what are you currently reading? And maybe there's a book that you always recommend to others. And why is that? Okay, so I, I actually have, have two books. One is called The Happiness Advantage. I want to make sure by Sean Aker. And the premise of this book is that um, the harder you work, the more successful you'll be. Therefore, the happier you will be. And it's a fallacy. It, that, that, that's flawed. I mean, Happiness is not about thinking, okay, if I would get this next promotion or get this next job opportunity, or if I could just save this much in my account, then I'm going to be happy. It's really happiness within. And everybody defines that differently. But for me, that's been important because I will always set my side on what are the next goals and objectives. And I just have to remember that's important and it's interesting. And uh, I think intellectually it challenges you, but it may not, what drives, it may not be what drives happiness. Uh, the other book is Start With the Why by Simon Sinek. And this is all about what I mentioned earlier. You have to tell people not what you, we need to achieve, but why you need to achieve. Because that is what inspires employees. And to me, at the end of the day, if you have an inspired workforce, they will work harder for you than anybody else. So those are just a couple of books I, I enjoy. Those are great recommendations and thank you for those. And for our listeners and viewers, we'll make those available in the episode notes. Melissa, can't thank you enough for your time today. It was very short and very insightful conversation. At least for me, I learned quite a bit. Uh, definitely going to stay in touch with you. Perhaps we're going to do another episode in, in a year or so and see how much you've changed, transpired. And I'm definitely looking forward to that. That'd be great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.